My name is Dr. Mandalini. Before that, you already know me from small group sessions. I'll be teaching you also some lectures. I'm an assistant professor of neuroscience. I'm a physician by training and a strokeologist in training too. And I have an accent. You all know that. And accent is the color of my soul. I, you know that too. So I, I can't wash it away for you, right? You know, but I'll, I'll try to speak slow. Uh, so we'll talk about neurodevelopment. This used to be covered in four lectures before, right? And now we have concised it into one lecture. So, uh, but, but, but. We have, we have thrown away um, the information that is not so relevant, right? But we have, instead, we have created two clinical cases, which, is, uh, which I will be teaching to you um, tomorrow. <coughs> and uh, we'll start with the clicker question, right? These are the objectives. The ones in blue are part of, uh, are part of uh, the async stuff. I will briefly, for a few minutes, go through the async stuff as well. Right? And then we will cover the rest of the objectives. Basically, what we are trying to do today is that we are trying to um, look at uh, a structure that would develop into the nervous system, that would eventually, which starting off as neural plate, becoming a neural tube, and how it is differentiating into different parts of the central nervous system, namely um, how is forebrain formed, how is midbrain formed, how is the spinal cord formed, and all those jazz, right? And then we'll, we'll, we'll briefly touch upon a couple of uh, clinical cases, and uh, I'll try to impart all that wisdom in the 50 minutes. Okay, we'll talk about some names, right? These are the only names that mm -hmm, I would not go beyond uh, these objectives when I'm testing you, right? You know, this is, um, you have to remember these names like Sonic Hedgehog, what is BMP, what is PMP22, uh, what is a Netrin, what is BDNF, and then we will talk about uh, um, the kind of pruning that we do in the central nervous system around birth and just before birth. <coughs> so this is our assigned reading. Um, so kindly check uh, the assigned reading, but we'll start with, uh, hey, who is clicking already? You did not even read the question. So neurodevelopment is associated with which of the following stages of human life? Is it embryonic? Is it fetal? Is it just before birth? Just after birth? Or way after birth throughout life? <clears throat> Honestly, how many how many how many saw the async content before before coming here? <laughs> okay. 
All right. So we all start. We all start from the embryonic stages, as you know, right? That uh, part of the ectoderm um, it is always inhibited by BMP. Um, the reason why we don't form a nervous system. So in order to form a nervous system from the ectoderm, you have to inhibit bone morphogenic protein, right? And it is done by cordin and noggin. And cordin and noggin inhibits BMP and the ectoderm becomes part of the nervous system, right? We call this as a neural tube, sorry, neural plate. And uh, the neural plate just indents because of uh, the change in shape of uh, the cells within the neural plate and it becomes neural groove and the neural groove folds in the center to become the basis of neural tube. Neural tube, okay, neural plate, it folds itself on the dorsal and superior aspect, uh, dorsomedial and superior aspects. So the zipper goes rostrally and as well as caudally, right? That this becomes the basis of neural tube. Right? If the, if the zipper were not to close properly, either on the rostral or on the caudal side, then we get uh, a, a, a different array of neural tube deficits. Right? If the zipper doesn't close properly on the rostral aspect, it gives rise to anencephaly. That is the extreme form. Right? If the zipper doesn't close uh, uh, properly in the caudal side, it gives rise to um, myelomeningocele and, you know, again, there are an array of deficits that we would come across. <clears throat> and now you have to learn about uh, the biomarkers, right? How can you identify possibly a neural tube deficit in a child in utero, right? And uh, apart from that, you have learned that as part of async, um, encephaly, the, the spina bifida, myelocele, myelomeningocele, etc. And you have also learned about the fact that this neural tube is now segmented, right? It has three vesicles. It, it can be differentiated into three vesicles, namely prosencephalon, mesencephalon, and rhombencephalon. So that's what you have learned so far as part of the async objectives. So we have divided this neural tube into three segments, namely prosen, mesen, and rhombencephalon, right? And now let's talk about why we do form prosen. Why is there this segmentation is what we are starting now. So, <clears throat> neurodevelopment is, it happens throughout life as a matter of fact, right? As, as I, I would say it starts with embryonic life, right? It continues through fetal life, just before birth, after birth, and all the way beyond, right? So, all of them is correct. Yeah. So, when does it start? Does it end? It, it ends only with uh, death, I would say, right? Uh, briefly put, uh, this is what is happening right the induction how we are changing the neural plate sorry ectoderm into neural tube is uh, uh, induction and then segmentation we are not talking so much about proliferation and migration but we will talk about survival <coughs> survival apoptosis maturation synaptic specificity and briefly touch uh, uh, regeneration and repair so now <coughs> so this is the segmentation that we spoke about that uh, the primitive neural tube is divided into three vesicles, namely prosen, mesen, and rhombencephalon, and you have learned that it becomes eventually into five segments, namely prosen divides into telencephalon, which would become the basis of the future cerebral hemispheres, and diencephalon, which is the basis of uh, the thalamus. The mesencephalon becomes basis of midbrain, 
and rhombencephalon becomes the basis of meten and myelencephalon during the embryonic stages there are there are there is distinct segmentation within each of these segments right like uh, telencephalon has many distinct segments as well but uh, the most well studied is rhombencephalon that's what we would be concentrating on right um, the the segmentation at the level of telen and uh, diencephalon uh, becomes intense so we are concentrating on the segmentation of the rhombencephalon <clears throat> and then okay let's talk about homeotic genes right these are the master genes that would control i don't have to i'm not teaching a genetics lecture but you have come across homeobox genes have you yes these are the master genes that would eventually control a lot of more other genes and uh, each of such genes <coughs> control the formation of different aspects of uh, the brain especially uh, prosen mesen and uh, rhombencephalon for example the homeotic genes called as emx and otx play an important role in the formation of uh, in the formation of parts of the forebrain and uh, eyes are formed under the homeotic gene pax 6 have you heard about pax aniridia in have you okay. pax aniridia uh, so if if you knock off this gene the patient, the, the 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 animal would not develop uh, um, parts of the eye and uh, there is hox genes which uh, help in the development of uh, um, of the rhombencephalon so these are the different types of genes that uh, we have to uh, we come across this, this is it is it is the expression of these genes the reason why we have distinct segmentations uh, uh, throughout the developing nervous system right you are responsible to know what is emx otx and hox so formation of prosen and metencephalon uh you have to learn about emx and otx right any kind of emx genetic defects results in schizencephaly right uh, schiz is uh, deep uh, cephaly is you know there is deeply fissured uh, uh, gyri sulci i would say right there is deeply fissured sulci and the patients would have uh, uh um, would present with uh, a lot of uh, conditions like epilepsy etc so the patients would have deep crevices parts of the cortex may be absent or might be replaced by csf <clears throat> so this hox gene right the most well studied uh, aspect of the developing nervous system is uh, the hind brain which is the rhombencephalon and uh, um it is distinctly segmented in that there are eight rhombomeres within the rhombencephalon in that uh, within this segment of rhombencephalon there are eight further substructures and uh, it, they all form under this segment is so distinct because of the expression of hox gene and the hox gene is under the influence of the retinoic acid so there is a longitudinal gradient in that uh, there would be more uh, um, uh, retinoic acid uh, here when compared to here so it gives us it gives rise to a differential expression of the hox gene throughout uh, the rhombencephalon the reason why each part of the rhombencephalon is so distinct so uh, let me just recap what i said right that the rhombencephalon right which is this part is again divided into distinctive segments eight segments and uh, these segments are distinctive because of uh, the expression of differential expression of hox gene and uh, 
this differential of this differential expression of Hox gene is because of uh, a gradient of uh, retinoic acid. Or in other words, can I say that each part of the brain is different because of a differential expression of a particular homeobox gene, right? The reason why the uh, forebrain has the, the telencephalon has gyrian sulci uh, is because of a differential expression of ET, sorry, EMX and OTX, right? And then the reason why dencephalon is giving rise to all the structures of the eye is because of uh, PAX6. The reason why rhombencephalon is so different is because of uh, the expression of Hox gene, HOX gene. The reason why the rostral hindbrain or the rostral parts of the pons is different from the caudal parts of the pons is again because of differential expression of Hox gene under the influence of retinoic acid. Or in other words, we have this, this, this uh, developing brain is under the influence of uh, a lot of chemicals right, that determine differential expression of a, a, homeo a homeobox gene, homeotic gene, the reason why uh, each part of the central nervous system has a distinctive morphology. Okay? Yeah? Yeah. So, <clears throat> I, I, I put this example because uh, um, this is one of the well-studied uh, um, aspects in the developing nervous system, the uh, rhombencephalon. You can see that R1, R2, R3, R4, R5, R6, R7, R8. There are eight rhombomeres and uh, they constitute parts of pons and medulla oblongata. Right? And each segment is different. As you could see that um, uh, rhombomere 2 gives rise to the trigeminal. Rhombomere 4 gives rise to the facial. Rhombomere 6 gives rise to the glossopharyngeal. So the reason why glossopharyngeal exists only there is because of uh, these genes. You understand what I'm saying? Right? Yeah? Okay. <coughs> now, we, 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 we took the neural tube, right? And we have expressed different genes at different aspects. So that this part of neural tube is becoming forebrain, this, be this is becoming mesencephalon, this is becoming rhombencephalon and uh, spinal cord, etc., etc. Right? We are so far we looked at the longitudinal um, structure of the developing neural tube. Now we will look at uh, the ventral and dorsal aspects. Right? How we differentiate the ventral and dorsal aspects of the developing nervous system, and uh, you have to you have to remember three. Um, chemicals here, which is sonic hedgehog, right? Sonic hedgehog. Don't blame me. Somebody named it as sonic hedgehog. Uh, and it is, it is present in uh, the developing, in, in, the, in the notochord. And uh, have you heard about BMP, bone morphogenic protein? If you have, if you have seen my async lectures, <laughs> We have to negate BMP in order to make the neurectoderm, right? So bone morphogenic protein is a, is, a, is a chemical that has to be negated or that has to be inhibited so that the ectoderm can form, can become neural plate, okay? So at this point of life now, we require BMP to dorsalize, to, so, uh, to, to help in defining the dorsal aspects of the neural tube. 
to define the ventral aspects of the neural tube we require sonic hedgehog right for example you have seen the spinal cord right the ventral aspect of the spinal cord is associated with motor structures right not so the ventral horn of the spinal cord is associated with the motor structures what about the dorsal horn sensory right what about alar plate when compared to the basal plate alar plate is sensory basal plate is motor have you have you reasoned out why it is so it is so because of a sonic hedgehog and the bmp right the ventral aspect of uh, let's say the let's talk about the uh, spinal cord right the ventral aspect it is much easier to explain right the ventral aspect of the spinal cord is motor because of the sonic hedgehog right sonic hedgehog is a chemical that is uh, produced initially by the notochord and later on by the floor plate and uh, that defines that uh, this is a cross section going through the um, neural tube okay this is the dorsal aspect and this is the ventral aspect so we are defining the what is what is ventral and what is dorsal because of the interactions between sonic hedgehog and uh, um, bmp the ventral aspect of the neural tube is motor because of sonic hedgehog and it is not just motor things it does a lot of other things as well in that sonic hedgehog influences uh, the formation of uh, cholinergic cholinergic neurons in the um, in the in the in the telencephalon and a lot of other things as well any kind of deficits of sonic hedgehog signaling might result in um, deformities right especially of the forebrain and also of the um, have you heard about holoprosencephaly right uh, which is undivided brain so any kinds of signaling or uh, dysfunctional signaling of sonic hedgehog might result in a lack of different structures but the take home message from this slide is that the ventral aspect of the neural tube right let's say here uh, parts of the brain stem and spinal cord is is motor because of uh, uh, because it was pickled in sonic hedgehog signaling during the neurodevelopmental stages and the dorsal aspect it does have a lot of interneurons and i would say that you know that's a sensory it is sensory it is different from the ventral aspect because of lack of sonic hedgehog and also because of influences from bmp which is bone morphogenic protein you have come across bone morphogenic protein twice very early in the in the in the in the development you have to inhibit bmp to form nervous system and it is the same bmp probably a homolog uh, eventually at a later point in life would influence the formation of or uh, would influence the patterning of the dorsal aspect of the neural tube we good with this yeah only uh, i keep saying two points three points but i say so many things but sonic hedgehog influences the ventral aspect of the um, ventral patterning of the neural tube bmp the dorsal patterning and in the longitudinal axis in a rostrocaudal axis we spoke about different homeobox genes that are patterning what becomes right you know at different parts of uh, uh, the neural tube and on a rostral sorry on a dorsal and caudal aspect it is the bmp and sonic hedgehog signaling that 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 defines what is there in dorsal side and what is there in the ventral side it is as simple as that how are we dividing this right what is the basis of segmentation homeotic genes what is the basis of what is dorsal and what is ventral bmp and sonic hedgehog
We good with this? Yeah. The same thing. <laughs> Remember, we spoke about uh, how um, not not me, but uh, I think Dr. Kirkby taught you about the LR plate and the basal plate. The LR plate is sensory. The basal plate is uh, um, motor and uh, remember the sulcus limitants it is so distinct in the brain stem and sulcus limitants is that uh, embryological groove in between the sensory and the motor structures at the level of brain stem you know that uh, this would just uh, open like a book the reason why alar plate derivatives come to lie laterally to the basal plate yeah the reason why the motor elements of the cranial nerve are present closer to the midline when compared to the pure sensory cranial nerves. <laughs> and now, have you ever wondered why, how uh, all these cranial nerves find their way, sorry, all these nerves find their way throughout the body? And they find uh, their way throughout the body because of something called as nitrin. Right? Right? Each, each developing neuron would have a growth cone and this is within the central nervous system that I'm talking about, right? And um, the, there are, we will talk about something else, NGF and other things. So, so nitrin, along with something called a slit, they define long-range axonal migration. Like, for example, uh, you know, how the wiring of uh, the optic chiasm takes place, right? How parts of the retina are crossing over and how some parts are not crossing over, why the corticospinal tract is crossing over, right, from one side to the other side. You understand? You, you already know this, right? You know why one half of the brain is responsible for the other half of the body, right, especially uh, on a motor sense, right? It is because of uh, the attractive and repulsive interactions of all these chemicals, the reason why these axons have crossed over, right? We are not going into massive detail about them, but the developing uh, uh, nervous system, right? You know, the axons would have something called as a growth cone, right? Growth cone is just, is that, is that, is that pioneering uh, part of this developing neuron that would be inching out uh, due to the influences of uh, uh, nitrin and uh, um, other, other, other part of it, other aspect of it is slit proteins. So, as you can see here, the commissural interneurons Right, uh, this is a primitive and developing neural tube. Uh, this is the dorsal aspect, this is the ventral aspect. So, as the growth cone reaches the floor plate under the influence of nitrin, which is uh, uh, long range attraction, right? And then, as it reaches, the nitrin signaling stops, and then something called a slit, which is a repulse, rip, repellent, right? You know, it is expressed, and uh, these axons are repelled. This is the basis of crossing over. If you if you if you see that dorsal column medial lemniscal pathway, which is uh, carrying information about proprioception, etc., they all cross over at the level of medulla oblongata. This is why things cross over. It is because of uh, uh, attractant and repellent properties uh, uh, under the influence of nitrin and slit that has happened during the neurodevelopment. So. In this slide, the take-home message for you is that are you well versed with uh, what is nitrin, right? Nitrin uh, is the one that guides the growth cone, right? So that uh, um, 
netrin and slate sorry and the the, the other aspect of uh, the objective is that you know why are the motor neurons going out the motor neurons for example here motor neuron is going out of the ventral aspect of the uh, central nervous system because of uh, mm, again because of uh, the interaction between slit and netrin right here we are talking about the sensory neurons and here we are talking about the motor neurons the take home message from this whole slide is that netrin and slit they are the ones that influence um, the long term attraction or repulsion of uh, the developing neurons within the nervous system yeah so let's talk about uh, pmp 22 again just just to recap what we learned we learned that neuro we we convert we converted part of ectoderm into neurectoderm we folded it we made it as a neural tube right and we divided neural tube into different aspects right namely prosen mesen and rhombencephalon and again telen densephalon mesencephalon and rhombencephalon which are five segments the reason why it has been segmented is is because of differential expression of uh, homeotic genes right and these homeotic genes much more specifically which is studied very well are the um, parts of uh, the segmentation of the rhombencephalon right the reason why r1 is different than r8 is because of, is because of a gradient of retinoic acid uh, that is present longitudinally so this gives the um, rostrocaudal morphology of the nervous system right we good with this and then we saw how the dorsal aspect is different from the ventral aspect we studied about netrin uh, sorry not netrin we studied about uh, um, sonic hedgehog that defined the ventral aspects of the entire neural tube and we studied bmp bone morphogenic protein uh, at this point of time uh, which is defining what is there dorsally we good with this so far and now we have come across how how these neurons are uh, maturing right uh, we spoke about the fact that you know why is why is such crossing goes happening right you know how are the uh, motor nerves going out of the central nervous system right we spoke briefly about netrin growth cone how it is guided and rippled right how there is short range uh, attraction long range attraction and uh, short range repulsion and how um, how netrin and slit proteins play a role in this we good this so far right now we'll talk about peripheral myelin protein pmp22 and uh, pmp22 is secreted by the schwann cells and um, if the schwann cells were to let uh, if you were to develop schwann cells in a culture they would produce pmp22 and they would just break it down unless it is associated with neuron it doesn't make sense Uh, for it to make uh, a sheath of uh, myelin sheath surrounding the neuron so they are secreted by the schwann cells they are essential for layering of the schwann cell membrane as myelin and why are we studying this we are studying this because one of the one important uh, uh, inherited conditions of uh, nervous system is uh, um, associated with pmp22 so any mutations in pmp22 peripheral myelin protein would result in hypomyelination there would be lack of myelination you already uh, miss alexander has already taught you about the importance of myelination and what would happen if there is lack of myelination 
so they knocked off so every time we want to prove a point we either kill mice or monkeys so we did that here so <laughs> they knocked off this pmp22 gene and then the mouse the, the mouse became clumsy there was tremor and there was uh, muscle atrophy and uh, a comparable condition in the human beings is Charcot-Marie Tooth. Um, as a matter of fact, it is named after three different neurologists. Um, so Charcot-Marie Tooth. Um, it, is a, it is the most common inherited uh, neuropathy. Right? The reason why we are learning it here. And uh, uh, there is a substitution. Glycine would be substituted by aspartate. The patients would have limb weakness due to muscle atrophy, gross and fine movements and it is not fatal. Okay, this girl is brought to the physician because of loss of balance, increasing difficulties in walking and moving her arms. Examination shows weakness and loss of sensations in her feet. Additionally, her distal muscles showed signs of wasting. DNA test confirmed an inherited genetic mutation. Which of the following is most likely? Uh, which of the following is most likely the cause? <coughs> Laminin. We haven't heard laminin so far, so forget about laminin, right? LF is, is, LIF is also uh, <laughs> an important chemoattractant, but it is not part of our objectives anymore. Netrin, you know, we, we studied netrin. The importance of netrin is that it, it, uh, it uh, uh, attracts the growth cone in the developing nervous system, right? And uh, if we knock off netrin, I don't know if there is a human condition, uh, um, there are some conditions, some rare conditions, where the crossing over doesn't take place and the patients would present with a lot of other things, but that's not the case. It's rare, right? Agrin. We haven't studied agrin yet. Um, I don't, you will come across agrin at a later point in time. Uh, agrin helps in aggregation of all the, um, all the receptors in the synaptic cleft so that uh, not the whole muscle, but only the neuromuscular junction is the point of activation, right? So that is about agrin. But here it is the PMP22 expression that is, that is. Uh, so it is PMP22. It is what we refer to as. Uh, um, so check out here. It is due to the lack of myelination that the child has uh, both sensory and motor difficulties. And then we have also alluded to the fact that probably this could be a genetic condition so it is a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy right mm, usually involving children it is a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy due to defective pmp22 signaling right there is no myelination so due to the hypomyelination there will be so many effects in the patient and this child would have motor as well as sensory abnormalities yes
yes i would say yeah i agree with you but the, the pmp22 expression would still be dysfunctional right probably yeah yeah but still it is non functional the reason why um, the all these pathologies arise yeah there would be scant production of uh, myelin probably so it is what we refer to as shakomari tooth uh, dysfunctional pmp22 gene expression most common right the re the whole reason why we are studying this is it is the most common inherited neurological disorder it is sometimes referred to as hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy uh, it appears late in childhood as is as is the case in this child um uh, so it is the, the the child would have chronic degeneration of the peripheral nerves like muscle atrophy there would be sensory ataxia leading to clumsiness amongst many other things have a clear with shakomari tooth and the reason why the whole reason why we are learning pmp22 it's not just for the heck of it but it is uh, it is a most common inherited condition now we learnt about how we formed myelin we learnt about how we guided the axons and now we will learn about during the process during this whole process of neurodevelopment uh, we we just produce things in excess right and that is not and that is not uh, uh, efficient so in order to make it efficient we have to do something called a synapse retraction elimination this is where the apoptosis comes in right we are just pruning out uh, um cutting off uh, uh, the excesses and uh, trying to make the system much more efficient right that's what we are trying trying to do with synaptic elimination and retraction one example that is studied is about uh, the uh, the the innervation of the muscles right during parts of the fetal life right where we we have poly polyneural innervation of all the muscle fibers you can see here this is a muscle fiber look at the number of nerves that are innervating it 1 2 in this case it is 1 2 3 would we have a efficient muscle contraction if we were to be innervated if each muscle fiber is innervated by such many neurons we would not have right and so some kind of some kind of competition arises between 1 2 3 and only one remains right so from from polyneural innervation each muscle fiber becomes a mononeurally innervated structure because of something called as apoptosis and synaptic elimination so this is how we use uh, apoptosis in in us uh, so skeletal muscle fibers which are singly innervated when mature are typically innervated by several motor neurons late in the embryonic development so a competition apparently arises between red green and blue and only one of them remain right and by doing so we are making the muscle fiber contraction much more efficient this is where the apoptosis and pruning comes into play in the process of neurodevelopment so that we are trying to make this whole uh, human body much more efficient and uh, um, before this right you know um, uh, there is a async objective regarding nerve growth factor and bdnf 
BDNF and nerve growth factor. What sustains the um, the outgrowing uh, uh, neuron when it is innervated is something called as nerve growth factor and the equivalent, a homologue of nerve growth factor within the central nervous system is what we refer to as BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor which, are, which, which can be loosely classified as neurotrophins and as the name implies they sustain the neurons, neurotrophins and uh, for, for the discovery of uh, nerve growth factor Dr. Rita Lavi Montalcini got a Nobel Prize and, and, and uh, her story is amazing if you ever uh, get to read. And then um, just to recap also part of the async objectives that I spoke so for, for almost six minutes, nerve growth factor is important in the development of sympathetic nervous system and the sensory nervous system. It has minimal effects on parasympathetic and motor nervous system but it is so essential in the development of sympathetic and sensory nervous system especially sustenance of uh, the sympathetic and uh, sensory nerves in, 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 in life. And then we came across uh, this synapse, how do we, how do we use uh, apoptosis in the process of neurodevelopment. Uh, this example of how polyneural, um, polyneural innervation of the muscle becomes mononeural postnatally is an example of apoptosis and synaptic elimination so that uh, so that things become much more efficient. As a matter of fact, between 40 to 75% of neurons made will die after migration. Death is normal and necessary and it is what we refer to as apoptosis. Excuse my clumsy graphics here. This is what uh, right, you know, I was trying to show just that you know, each muscle fiber is polyneural before, during the embryonic stages and because of apoptosis, each one is mononeural so that this becomes a much more efficient system and that uh, um <coughs> and that we have a nicely functioning muscle fiber system let's talk about critical period in this for for the developing brain there are many different critical periods for many different functions here they have widely um studied something about stereoscopy right uh, and the critical periods. We have critical periods for, uh, for, uh, uh, for, for even for the sexual orientation, for language development, for a lot of other things, right? A critical period is that time window during when any changes made would be permanent and would be forever, right? So here we are speaking about critical period for um, stereoscopic vision. Though you haven't come across uh, deeply about uh, uh, the visual pathways, but briefly put, right, each eye has a visual field, right? This is the right visual field and this is the left visual field, right? And uh, each visual field can be divided into two halves, nasal half that is closer towards the nose and temporal half which is closer towards the temporal bone, right? Nasal half for the left side and temporal half for the um, left side, right? And then both the informations from um, the two temporal halves, right, they cross over, right. When they reach the occipital lobe, let's say for example, when the visual information reaches the right occipital lobe, 
you are seeing the visual information of the left side of the visual field of the right eye and left side of the visual field of the left eye the right occipital lobe processes the information coming in from the left side of both eyes visual field and vice versa is true for the uh, left occipital field in that it processes the visual field coming in from the right visual fields of both of the eyes okay and now let's talk about this experiment so you all agree now that occipital lobe right let's say right occipital lobe would have visual information from both of the eyes okay and then in a in a adult uh, occipital lobe right in a, in a mine mine is not a healthy occipital lobe at least not a healthy cornea right uh, we will have equal width of right eye left eye right eye left eye the representation on the occipital lobe is in such a way that, that, that there is a clear and defined architecture that defines what is right eye what is coming in from the left eye okay so where does all the sensations end up in we have you have learnt about six layered cortex right 1 2 3 4 5 6 where do we where does all the sensations end up layer 4 do you agree layer 4 is the place where all this um sensations end up in now let's see what is happening uh with with eye during the critical periods so this is this is this is before birth right as you could see uh, i again excuse my clumsy graphics but this is the occipital cortex let's say this is the layer 4 of the occipital cortex it does have representations both from the left eye and right eye for example and if you see each one right this area is not clearly defined right you can see a lot of jumbling up there is lot of blurring right each eye is encroaching on other eyes uh, um fields right this is the cortex and this is the layer 4 of the cortex in a adult occipital cortex this is how it looks like right that there is a clear representation for one eye and the next eye so let's say this is the left eye and this is the right eye so in in each occipital lobe's fourth layer there is a clear uh, area of representation for left eye and right eye left eye and right eye but before birth this is how we are born there is no clear um, clearly defined area within the layer 4 of the occipital cortex you can see that everything is jumbled up together and now it is the visual experiences right it is the early visual experiences as soon as we are born what we see would help in defining this clear and uh, circum clear and circum uh, clear and defined architecture um for area of representation of the left eye and right eye left eye and right eye respectively or in other words we are cleaning up the areas after we are born the reason why we are learning is let's say no not now let me show you the next example this would make it much more clear right so in in this is how uh, let's say if 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 you if you see the layer 4 of the occipital cortex in a newborn this is how it would be right this is the left uh, 
column and this is the right column. But the left column is being encroached also by the representation of the right eye. The right eye or the right eye fields, right eye columns are also encroached by the left eye. Or in other words, things are blurry and uh, they are overlapping um, in, in, there is overlap between inputs from right eye and left eye. But after six weeks, due to the early visual experiences, each of these columns become much more defined and then you can see that there is a clearly designated area for uh, input coming from the left eye and for input coming from the right eye. So uh, at six weeks, segregation into separate clusters corresponding to the ocular dominance columns happen. So this is an example again of synaptic, synaptic elimination and pruning that happens after birth. I will tell you an example of the importance of what is happening here. Previously, they used to, if a child is born with congenital cataract, they used to think that, oh, the child has cataract, let's say in one eye, right? And they used to just leave the child alone and, you know, this is a child and let's not uh, do any operative procedures on him or her. And so they just used to leave it. But then these basic science experiments proved that Oh, the early visual experiences are so vital in order to have a clearly defined ocular dominance columns in the occipital lobe with a clearly defined borders between right eye input and left eye input, right eye input and left eye input. The reason why it is important is because it gives us a sense of stereoscopy, right? The depth of uh, the picture uh, is happening because of this clearly defined ocular dominance columns. So this basic science experiment has, has spurred in, um, not spurred in, has, is an evidence that you have to operate any congenital cataract right away. You can't wait because you are denying the child uh, the early visual experiences that would define or that would help in pruning of ocular dominance columns within the occipital lobe that would help them get stereoscopic vision. They have done this in a monkey, right? This is not a human brain, but you know, Whenever we have to prove a point, we just kill monkeys, right? You know, that's what we have done. <laughs> they gave radioactive proline. So they took, a, they took a monkey, they gave radioactive proline, which could be imaged, and then they only gave it in one eye. So obviously, you know the fact that uh, part of the, let's say this is the left eye, part of this eye's fibers, optic nerve, crosses over, and it is represented in the right occipital cortex as you all know let's say this is the left eye this is the right eye and this is the right occipital lobe so you can see the patterning of uh, uh, the radioactive proline um, which is coming in from uh, the left eye in the occipital lobe the layer 4 of the ox right occipital lobe this is the left eye this is the right eye left eye right eye so now they have done this experiment they gave radioactive proline in a monkey and they did nothing, right? they did not uh, um, do any interruptions of uh, the vision and later on uh, after a few weeks they sacrificed the monkey, they have looked at uh, the layer 4 of the cortex, occipital cortex. Now this is what I am talking about. In the occipital lobe at layer 4, we should have an equal distribution coming in from the left eye, sorry let's say left eye right eye, left eye, right eye. 
So this width is so accurate, right? You know, it's 0.5 mm. But now, if you were to deny, let's say, for example, if you put uh, an occluder, as soon as the monkey is born, if you put an occluder in one eye and then just deny the vision from that eye, the visual field input from the other eye would just take over. For example, here, let's say this is the left eye input. See the width of representation of the right eye when compared to the left eye. Everything that is uh, smeared in black. Let's see. How can I access the... Give me a sec one second, please. You see, this this is bad color. So this is the input, let's say, coming coming in from the occluded eye, right? See this when compared to the non-occluded eye, right? See the expanse of this when compared to this one. So the whole point that I'm trying to make is that there is a period, there is a critical period during when we develop stereoscopy, right? This is uh, uh, and uh, to develop stereoscopy. The early visual fee, early visual input is so important for this pruning to happen at the level of uh, uh, at the level of occipital lobe. Um, the early visual influences are important, and uh, mm, if we deny any early visual input, then uh, the whole stereoscopy would be gone. And they 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 actually did this experiment not to prove a point, but eventually they derived something that oh. We have to treat congenital cataracts very early, or else, you know, the patients might end up with uh, um, unequal representation on the ocular dominance columns in the occipital lobe, and probably it might translate into lack of stereoscopy in the child's future. Right? So, I think I did uh, cover all the objectives. We went from neural plate formation to what is uh, helping in segmentation to what is dorsalizing and what is ventralizing and we help we, we saw about uh, netrin and uh, in the async lectures we spoke about nerve growth factor and then we spoke about uh, how we use apoptosis before birth and after birth before birth we use apoptosis in the muscle innervation in that we just prune out uh, the extra uh, uh, muscle innervation muscle fiber innervation and uh, from polyneural, we go to mononeural. And uh, the same pruning, we use it after birth uh, in the visual system. And uh, the reason why early visual influences are so important in uh, us having stereoscopy is what I was trying to prove here. Right? Thanks again for your attention. <laughs>